Thanks for coming. Um, today, before we begin, first of all, I'd like to remind everyone, um, those who have not yet participated, is a great opportunity uh, to join us in our Sefer Torah. Um, it's, um, this week a mailing is going out, and you might see them around next to the CDs. Um, it's a very, very, very special Sefer Torah. We discussed it two weeks ago in the class. Um, it's written in honor of the Baal Shem Tov. And I believe and I pray that um, there are miracles connected to this Sefer Torah. So if you buy a letter, a pasuk, um, a parsha, a sedra, whatever it is, take a look and be part of this very, very awesome Torah. It's going to take a trip around and hopefully absorb the light of all the tzaddikim that it's going to visit. And it's going to join us here at Ma'an Yisrael, hopefully illuminating and bringing us a lot of miracles and a lot of light. So um, we're running out of stuff, actually. There's almost all the parashiyos were sold already. Um, and so just the last chance to join us in this great, 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 great endeavor. So please take a look. And it has an opportunity for everyone, no matter which, what your financial capabilities are, everybody could and connect to this very, very special Sefer Torah. All right. Um, tonight's class was dedicated by Mrs. Josette Flicker. And this is in honor of her father and mother's yard site, which both come out now in the month of Adar. Her father was, today, on the 18th of Adar, Eliyahu ben Yaakov, Olav HaShalem, and her mother, which is, her name is Flora Sarah Bas Avram, is going to be next week uh, on the 28th of Adar. May both your parents have a very, very great aliyah to the greatest of heights. May they channel lots of blessings to you and to your family for only bracha mazel and only only good things both in the material and in the spiritual thank you another dedication tonight was by my very dear son-in-law Rabbi Mendel Zirkind who by the way gave an excellent class here yesterday in the morning and it's up on our website all about the balance of bitachen and ishtadlus of how much we trust in God and how much we're going to do our own thing, put our own act together in financial matters. He really, really jam-packed it with lots and lots of sources. And um, it's a very, very special class, so you can go listen to it on our website. 
Um, tonight's class he dedicated in honor of his father's yurtzeit, which was today also on the 18th of Ador. Rav Yitzchak and Rav Eliezer Tzvi Zev Olav Hashalem. May his neshama have a great, a great, a great aliyah to the greatest of heights. Much, 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 much brachas and mazel and only, only good. And mazel tov to the Zirkins on the upcoming wedding of another Zirkin brother. Which will be with Shateva Metzlachas. And much, much bracha and mazel. Um, another dedication today was on the CD. This was by the Smolyansky family. The CD was sponsored in honor of Naftali Smolyansky, Olav Hashalem's grandmother. Her name was Esther Bas Naftali, whose yard site is on the 23rd of Adar. May her neshama have a very, very great aliyah, channel lots of brachas. They also, to the whole family, they also dedicated it to thank Hashem for recent miracles. Um, may the miracles only continue, and only, only for good things and also for a few birthdays in the family. So everybody who has a birthday should have a shnas bracha, natzlach, a wonderful good year with only, only revealed good and much blessings and prosperity. Last dedication on tonight's second dedication for the CD. This is by my father, and he's dedicating it in honor of his mother, my grandmother's yard site is this week, Chaf Alev Adar. Her name is Chana Tzivya Bas Rabbi Yecheskel. Um, she's very, very, very dear to me, as was probably the person with the most influence on in my life. And she was the sweetest woman. It's interesting that her yard site is the same day of her birthday, because she was really a very big, very special tzaddikis. So you see that only by few people. She was a real chassidista, so her yard site is on the yard site of Rebbe Melech of Lezensk as well, which is a very, very powerful day on the Hasidic calendar by all general chassidim. So may her neshama have a great aliyah, much mazel bracha to my parents and to everyone. Only, only good, only, only, only good for everyone in our family and only good. All right, um, now we've done with all the dedications, we're ready to learn tonight's class. So this week is Parshas Shmini, and what we are going to do is we're going to take a little trip to the zoo, being that it's the parsha where we learn about the Torah discusses the kosher and the non-kosher. So we encounter the animals this week in the parsha, and we get to find out which animals we can eat and which animals we cannot eat. Now, the mitzvah of kashrus is a very important and prominent mitzvah very essential to our Jewish experience because it's so much of our life evolves around kashras. And the Jewish people are such a marvelous people, such an extraordinary people. Uh, the amount of submission that we have to Hashem in keeping kashras is really, really, really spectacular. Really is. We all know you walk down the street, it's full of restaurants, bakeries, food, whatever, all over. And wherever we go, whether we're in the airport, on a plane, whether we're at the mall, an amusement park, wherever we go, there's always, or many times, delicious smelling food. 
And we, not always have we remembered to bring along enough provisions. And many times we actually walk around hungry. And we don't eat. And if you think about any person, just walks into any shop, whether it's a Burger King, whether it's a Denny's, or a Kentucky Fried Chicken, or whatever else is out there. And um, Papa John's Pizza. Or whatever that's there. And you just eat all the time. There's no such a thing as surrendering your, 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 your desire, withholding one's desire, unless you're on a diet. But that's, again, that's for a selfish purpose. But over here, to be able to constantly say, no, 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 just because God said so. It's so awesome. And the pleasure it must give our Father in Heaven is unbelievable. How much we, we surrender constantly. We live that way. Now, of course, if you always grew up keeping kashras, it's kind of something you take for granted. But it doesn't mean that we're not, we're not, it's not special. It's very special. Because we are humans with, with a need to eat all the time. And we get hungry. So the fact that you continuously keep kashras is amazing. For those who began keeping kashras later in Yiddishkeit, I'm, I'm, I'm completely in awe of people that can take upon themselves something so, something so, such a strong acceptance to be able to decide something that I will never ever, I'm so used to eating everything and stop eating. It's amazing. So kashras is a very, 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 very great part of our Jewish experience. And it would be important to understand a little better the idea what's behind kashras, what's behind the foods that we can eat and the foods that we cannot eat. And we know that um, the Medrash tells us that God keeps us away from eating non, the non-kosher food is because the world around us is swarming with, with um, sp- spiritual germs and bacteria, sp- spiritual um, negative, unhealthy germs and bacteria and the Torah and God gives us very very clean clear guidelines in Parsha Shemini and the laws of kosher of how to steer clear and not allow these this negative stuff to get inside of us and to cause us spiritually to become very unhealthy um, the, the Rashi brings it on the words the opening verse this week on the laws of Kashras is Zos HaChaya this is the animal that you can eat and then it goes on to talk about Natchaya, which are wild beasts. It goes on to talk about Behema, domestic animals. So why does it begin with the word Zosachaya? This is the Chaya. So Rashi says there's a special reason why the Torah begins with the word Chaya, because Chaya means being alive. And it gives us insight into why God gave us this mitzvah. Rashi brings a fascinating idea from the Midrash. Two people came to visit the doctor. Two people that are sick. They're both waiting in the waiting room in a doctor's waiting room to be seen by the doctor both of them are pretty sick and, and each one goes in and is seen by the doctor and they meet on the way out in the elevator both of them meet again so they, they, so they say how did it go and each one exchanges with the other one what happened so one of them went into the doctor and the doctor really examined him and very quickly gave him just a, a medication or two and he's on his way to his pharmacy to fill his prescription and that's it the other fellow looks all to tumult, all, all shook. 
And the other guy says, so what's, what, what did the doctor tell you? Because he says to him, that's it? He says, me, he gave me so much restrictions on my diet. I can't eat this, I can't eat that, and I can't do this, and I can't do that. So he gets very upset. He says, and you, we didn't tell anything. All he gave you is just one or two pills, and that's all you have to do once a day. And So he's really, so he says, yeah, that's what that happened. He's puzzled. Next time he comes back to the doctor, he says, I don't understand. You know, me and him have the same condition, and me, you've given all these, all these limitations and constrictions. I don't know what to do. So the doctor said to him, let me explain. This other fellow says, you know, I looked at him and there's nothing to do. His illness has progressed to a point where he can't be fixed, he can't be healed. So in a couple of months, he's going to die. So let him live and enjoy life. But you, I see there's still hope. So therefore, I'm giving you a very restrictive diet so that you can protect yourself and rid yourself from whatever illness is there so you can live a happy, healthy life till 120. So the Medrash says, God did not put restrictions on the nations. He gave them a few seven Noahide laws, basic ideas, a couple of pills. just. To, but that's about it. But the Jewish people, Hashem gave us such a restricted diet because the Jewish people have to live on to eternity. And because we're meant to live not just spiritually on to eternity, because I'm not going to get into if Gentile souls also can live on to eternity. But physically, the Jewish people are meant to live in the physical world here for all of eternity and the resurrection. And we live on forever and ever. For that, we have to make sure that there's no bacteria in our bodies. There's nothing. So the Torah gives us the laws of kashras to keep us pure, to keep us clean, to keep us healthy. And uh, to add to that, a mo- an incredible motivation for kashras. Because, you know, in kashras itself, you can keep kashras very, very, very basic. And say, you know what, as long as it has somewhat of a kosher symbol, it's fine. Why do I have to be so restrictive or so strict? Or one can be like involved in kashras and make sure that what I'm eating is really, 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 really kosher. And I actually invest, investigate. And that takes, and that's really what we mean keeping kosher. It's not just keeping kosher, you know, just basic. It's to do kosher premium, which goes beyond the basic. And why, what would motivate a person to do that? So the introduction to the, um, the parsha of kosher, it says, Vaidabr Hashem al-Moshe aaron Hashem spoke to Moshe and Aaron, Lamar aleim, saying to them. Lamar aleim means saying to them. So what's this extra word, Lamar aleim? Hashem spoke to Moshe and Aaron, what does this mean? Lamar aleim, to say to them. So Rebbe Levi Yitzhak of Bardichiv, says and explains it in a very, very special way. It says that when you should know that when, 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 when um, Moshe Rabbeinu was put into the Nile River when he was a little baby and the daughter of Pharaoh went to bathe by the Nile and she heard this, she saw the casket and she heard the lad crying. She took him out and she hears the baby's crying so she figures the baby's hungry. So she gives this baby to the nurses, to the Egyptian women and the Egyptian Nurses try to nurse the baby, but the baby will not nurse. But the baby's still crying, but the baby will not nurse. So Basia is all puzzled because she kept on trying. She thought maybe, okay, for whatever reason, he doesn't like this nurse. He doesn't like the milk from this nurse. So she passed it around to many, many, many women who would try to nurse the baby, but the baby refused. So finally, Miriam, who was watching from a distance, Moshe's sister, she realized what was going on. She came running and she asked um, the princess, Basia, and she asked the do you, would you like me to bring, maybe, maybe the baby would want a Jewish nurse. So Basia said yes. Yeah. So she goes and she brought the mother, Yocheved, to, 
and Moshe Rabbeinu nursed. And Rashi says the reason why Moshe refused to nurse from all the other women was because this was the mouth that was going to speak to God. The mouth that was going to speak to the Shekhinah. Moshe was going to speak, Pel, Hashem spoke to him, was not going to eat anything that is, def- anything that is impure. Anything that is not, t- that is not called. Because Moshe was only going to eat in the literal, literal, literal sense, Chalav Yisrael. Right? Um, and obviously this is not the simple meaning of Chalav Yisrael, but in this case, Moshe only wanted Chalav milk from a, a Jewish source, not from a non-Jewish source. So the holy Badr says, the time is going to come when Mashiach comes, and every single one of us is going to speak mouth to mouth to Hashem. Because we're all going to be prophets. As it says, V'eshpoich esruchi Hashem is going to pour out a spirit onto everybody. V'nibu b'neichem u'b'noiseichem Your sons and your daughters are going to speak and have the same level of communication like Moshe Rabbeinu had. And as we're all going to speak directly to God, so how can we chas v'shalem defile our mouths with non-kosher food? And that's the meaning of what? That Hashem says, V'yadabed Hashem al Moshe v'al Aaron. And Hashem spoke to Moshe and Aaron, Lamar Aleem, say to the Jewish people, Lamar Aleem, that I want to speak to them. Soon, the time is coming. It might take three and a half thousand years. But the time is gonna come when I need to speak Aleem to each and every single one of them in the same way like I spoke to you. Therefore, you gotta be careful what you put in your mouth so that you have a holy mouth so that our mouth can talk with the Shekhinah. What a different kind of inspiration. We're not looking about the ugliness, the darkness, the dirty, the this, the that. Think about talking with God. And that's why we want to make sure that we have a, that purity necessary to be able to speak to Hashem. So now let's get a little bit of an insight into the, the deeper understanding of kosher and non-kosher. When we say something is kosher, so why, so the, why are certain things kosher? Why are they not kosher? So... Nachmanides, in this week in the parsha, um, explains that the reason why things are not kosher, uh, the, the, the reason why there are certain animals that are not kosher to eat, is because these animals exhibit certain character traits that are negative character traits. And when we eat the food, if we eat these animals, this, these negative traits are going to be absorbed into our psyche. And they're going to impress themselves upon us and make us become like the food that we eat. Because we know we are what we eat. Actual, do you know that all the cells of the body are constantly being replenished and changed? And it's all the new food that we're eating today which becomes the cells of our body tomorrow or next week or in a month, everything. It's like constantly changing. So we actually literally are made up from the food that we eat even our brain cells and our heart cells. That means all of our entire intellectual, psychological makeup, both intellectual and emotional, is all based on the food that we eat. So if the food, the animals, that God who is the creator of the universe knows which animals have negative traits and which animals have positive traits. And God says, that's what Nachmanri says, Hashem says, stay, stick to the kosher food because these things will nurture you with positive, positive midos, positive character traits. The negative things are going to have a very negative influence. Nachmanides goes on to explain primarily most of the animals that we're not allowed to eat because they're not kosher 
are cruel animals. They're opposite, they're not sensitive, they're not caring. They're cruel, they're predatory animals. He goes through the birds particularly. The Torah doesn't give us any simon for birds. The Torah doesn't say a sign. For, for animals, we're soon going to speak about the sign, which is the sign that makes an animal kosher, or can determine which animals are kosher, which animals are not kosher. When it comes to birds, the Torah doesn't tell us a sign. The Torah just gives us a list of all the non-kosher birds. And every bird that's not listed on that list automatically is kosher. If it's not part of the forbidden list, all other birds are kosher. So the Ramban, however, says that even though the Torah did not give a simon, but the sages did give a simon, a sign. Because we don't necessarily know how to identify every bird that says in the Torah. So if you're hungry and you're out somewhere in the wilderness and you catch a bird and you don't know exactly, so today's days you can Google with what happens if you don't have connection, <laughs> even today. Can you imagine? Um, so then how do you know if you can eat this bird or not? So generally the rule is that we don't eat any bird unless we have a mesora, unless we have a tradition that this is a kosher. There are certain people who don't eat turkey because of that reason. The Shalah HaKadosh, all the descendants of the Shalah HaKadosh, the Shalah HaKadosh was against Turkey because it was a food, it was a bird that was discovered in America and, I, and they didn't have it, it wasn't a part of the Jewish tradition. So therefore he forbidden, had forbidden it and it remained in the family that the grandchildren of the Shalah HaKadosh refrained from eating Turkey. But again, Turkey, I guess, has, has been seen maybe by most other rabbis as a, just a larger chicken. And chicken has always been a food that has been amongst the Jews. I don't know exactly the reason, but that's the way it is. Generally, we don't eat food that we don't have a Masorah. It means we don't have a tradition that this is a kosher bird. But hypothetically, if you need to check if something is kosher or not, the sages gave us a simon. And the simon the sages gave us the sign is every animal that's a dough race. Dough race means it grabs its prey when it's alive by its nails. I think it sinks its teeth and it kills it by leaning on it with its sharp nails. It like pierces its heart or something like that. Those are all the animals that are listed that are not kosher. All of them do that to their prey. It's a very vicious way of killing it. And that, the Torah does not want to inculcate that. God does not, not want that we should take that, absorb that into ourselves. So that's the explanation of Nachmanides. And obviously we'll carry that over into all non-kosher food. Now however, in addition to the physical reality, the physical element of it, of course there is also something spiritual to this. And that is a very, very important idea. And, and that is to understand that everything in this world, all material, every object, every entity, every creature within the physical world is really initially in an unholy state. Because holiness is not pronounced on it. Holiness is only something that is explicitly speaking and, be, and expressing God. That's holy. Holy means as a relationship to Hashem. Hashem is holy. So something that conveys a divine consciousness, a divine message, something like that is holy. Everything that you're looking at it, do not, you don't see in it anything connected. It doesn't have the fingerprints of God all over it. It's not holy. Now ultimately, of course, you can say everything has the fingerprints of God because you can look in the world and see that God created, but that's not the first... That's not the first take when we see things in the material world. The material obscures, hides, and blocks Hashem. Everything in this world is klipa, in the words of the Kabbalists. Klipa means, the actual translation of the word klipa, means a shell. 
And just like a shell that's on food, a shell that's on a nut, for instance, obscures the fruit, you don't see the nut, it's obscured and it's blocked by the shell. So too, everything in this physical world is obscuring and blocking Hashem. If we were to go out of the zone of this world, if we were to hop into the elevator and hit the next world and zoom up to the higher world and we would walk out in a higher realm, in the realm of Yetzirah, which is in a higher state of existence, we would look around and we wouldn't believe what we're seeing. From every creature we would see the light of Hashem shining. We would see the letters that, are, that God is creating. We would see angels. And what are angels? The moment you speak to them, the first words that come out is Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh. Holy, holy. That's their conversation. Everything about them is God. There's nothing other than their service of Hashem. That's in a higher realm. So their Kedusha, their holiness. But our lowest world is in the words of the Kabbalist, Male, Male, Male. Hear those words. Male meanings filled, Klipa, with shells. The Sitra Achra and the other side. If that's the case. So why are we here? Why are we hanging out in this dark, obscuring world full of these klipos, full of these entities that are blocking and concealing God? The answer is the purpose of the creation is transform darkness to light. So we are here actually to break the klipa, to crack the klipa, to crack the shell, and uncover the innate godliness that's in everything. Because at the core of every being there is a spark of Hashem. But it's blocked, and our work is to elevate it. For that, God sends our souls. Now our souls are not just holy. Our souls are super, super, super holy. Not just super, super holy. Our souls are divine. See, holiness means a creation that acknowledges God. But now there's something deeper than that. A spark of God alone. Not just something that is acknowledging God. And that's our neshamas. They're from the inner, 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 innermost essence. It's Hashem. That's our neshama, it's our peace of God. But our soul is incarnated in a body and placed in this world. And the idea is to project that godliness that we have in our neshama and to help break and shatter the kalipas, the shells that are blocking on all the material, physical things and help reveal the divinity, the godliness that's in every, at, the, at, the, at, the, at the core of every creature. For that... We are, God created us in a way that we are, we are we, in order to survive, literally just to survive as a human being, we need to be sustained by the material substances of this world. Because if we wouldn't have to be sustained by the physical substances of this world, and it would be possibly for us to live the life of a complete hermit, secluded from everything, just fasting all of our life, and being completely disengaged from all material and being like angels, then none of us would, would be involved in our job. We would all be on strike. We wouldn't be doing what we need to be doing. So God made it impossible for us to live unless we're going to involve ourselves with the material, physical. And I mentioned once in a class, if you think about how important eating is, what was the first conversation God had with a human being? The first conversation. When God creates a world, creates the human being, and he has a conversation with the human being. The first conversation he had was, this is what you should eat, this is what you shouldn't eat. And it's not so much that he was telling him what he can't eat. It was more about what he was telling him that he should eat. 
Because our purpose in this world is fulfilled by eating. Our, that's a great thing to remember, right? Our purpose in this world is to eat. But it really is that way. Our purpose really is to eat. Because when we eat, we convert energy. We take things from an unholy state and we integrate it into holiness. Because when we use the objects of this world and we gear them or we stir them, steer them towards the service of the divine, then we're elevating them and we're uncovering God in this world. And that's our job. However, within that world of klipa, within that world of stuff that obscure and hide Hashem, there are two levels. There is extremely, extremely dark klipas, very, very, very dark elements that conceal God completely, totally. And those klipas, we cannot, we can't elevate them. Because those are very, 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 very thick and tough shells. And, if we, and we can't crack them. God forbid if we try to get into them, to change them, it will have the opposite effect. Instead of us sublimating it, it's going to pull us in, it's going to suck us in to its darkness, to its concealment, and it's going to make us lose our connection with God. Here we have as a soul, we all have an intrinsic bond with Hashem. And our job is to take our holy, godly consciousness, our awareness of Hashem, and to imbue that and permeate every creature and every being and have all the world recognize Hashem. Because we have to be the influencers of all of creation. But these are extremely, extremely dark klipas that we cannot elevate, we can't crack the shell. Now let's be very sure about something. They too possess a divine spark. Because if there wasn't the divine spark in them, they couldn't exist. But they are holding on to that divine spark so tightly, they're clamping shut so strong, we can't elevate. It's like a crocodile that closes its mouth on something. And you can't pry the crocodile's mouth open. That's the three, and this is this level of klipa. We cannot open up their mouth to extract the sparks of holiness that are there. So if a crocodile grabbed something, grabbed your lunch, and you're really upset because you want your lunch, it's probably not such a good idea to try his, pry his mouth open to get your sandwich out. Just leave it over there and just run as far as you can. And that's basically the idea of all non-kosher food. All non-kosher food, these are physical entities. We look at them, okay, so it's a, you know what it is, I don't know, whatever it is. It's, it's a pig. It's a, like the Torah gives a whole list. So it's, it's, it's shellfish. It's crab. So it's not kosher. Okay, so what is that? See, they realize there is an, the energy that's coming down into that makes up the spiritual um, um, character, the spiritual energy of this creature, of this being, its DNA, is, is coming from these very, very dark klipas. See, these dark klipas are spiritual, they're not physical. But they give life to these physical objects. They're the sustainers. Obviously, everything comes from God. But through Hashem gives them life through putting it through these very dark klipas. And they hold on to this energy and they don't release it. So if we get involved with them, we can get our hand bit off. So we better we keep away from them. That's called the three impure klipas. Then there's another realm of klipa called klipas noga. Klipas Noga means it's also a shell, but it's a glowing shell. And the glowing shell means that a little bit light comes through the shell. 
A shell is like a blockage that blocks the light. When we speak about light, we're talking about God's light. So over here, it's a shell. It's like a translucent shell. When you have a translucent something, there's a little bit light that can come through. You can see through a little bit. You don't have a clear vision. Holiness is something that is completely is, is trans, transparent. And klipa is translucent. It's like murky, but a little bit light is there. In other words, the klipa is a mixture of good and bad. And here it depends how we will affect it. We can elevate it, God forbid, or affect it in, a, in, in another way. But the idea is, it is elevatable. And let me read to you from the words of the Arizal. This idea, now this is discussed in Tanya in chapter 7. It's a beautiful, important chapter to learn, to get an understanding of the world around us. In the end of chapter 6 and into chapter 7 is where he discusses the idea of these clippers. But it's a concept from the Arizal. And the Arizal says, Kikol um, this is in portal... 49, Shar Memtes, it's called Shar Klipas Noga. He says, Kikola behemois, all the animals, vachayos and beasts, vaifais and birds, vidagim and fish, vilonis and trees, vasavim and grass, vavonim and even rocks and stones, kulam tov vera, they're all a mixture of good and bad. And they're waiting to be impacted by us. If we use them in the right way, we pull them into holiness. If we use them in the, in the wrong way, we actually push them further down, further away from God. It's a huge, huge responsibility for a human being. Kulam tov they're all a mixture of good and bad. From which shell? Meklipas noga. From this shell, that's a translucent shell. Achat However, all non-kosher animals, shebebalechai, that are amongst the living creatures, vaasurim laachila, and all those that are forbidden to eat, Ba'asavim, even amongst the grass, let's say if they were mixed, kalayim, and certain things that you're not allowed to eat, uba'etzim, like arla, the first three years that a tree, that you plant a tree, um, um, these things are, they derive their energy from the three dark klipas that are unelevatable. That's the idea. So we can't fix them. So now we understand a whole new insight and deep understanding in the ideas of kosher and not kosher. It's not just God restricting us and telling us, eat this, not because I want you to serve me. You know, that itself is good enough reason. Even if God would say, everything is beautiful and nice and wonderful, I just don't want you to eat that. For no reason at all, just because I told you. That's, that would be sufficient enough for us, not to, for us to obey. After all, God created, created us. But here, the idea is much deeper than that. God is saying, these things that are not kosher are spiritually toxic for your soul. And God forbid, when you eat them, you're wreaking havoc on your soul. Because, and there's two things. Number one, these kalipas are entering into your neshama, into your soul. Clogging, desensitizing, creating barriers and barriers and barriers, putting blockages on blockages. Because God forbid the very cells of a person's body become, become three, become of the... It's an amazing thing, you think about it. The very fabric of your body becomes something that is antithetical to holiness and to God. Makes you unaware of Hashem, literally brings a person to become an apostate. Because it comes to denial, to become a, a non-believer. It disconnects a person completely. Of course, it doesn't have an effect immediately. But if you keep on eating non-kosher, and, has a t- and even a little bit, 
has an effect, has a very, very... Of course, we can do always tshuva, and then we can turn things around. But it has a very, very negative effect on a person. That's number one. Number two, we can look at it this way, we can look at it as spyware. It's the three impure klipas that are actually putting into the soul all kinds of spyware, and now they're deriving energy from your soul. Actually, the impure, the negativity in the world are receiving a powerful sustenance. They're draining all the bit of life that's there, pulling it into the unholy. So this is really, really bad stuff. So we need to stick to what's kosher and be very careful with kosher. And this is what, what gives us, by the way, this idea that we spoke about earlier about being not just kosher, but being vigilant about kashras. Because people are like, okay, so you know what? You know, there are people that like to be like really from, from, from. But I'm kind of, uh, you know, chilled out about things. But we all know from time to time, we see when it comes to worldly things, you know, the whole America goes crazy because there is an Ebola spreading. And like there's one person, what are the chances of getting it? But everybody, everybody goes crazy. Or there is salmonella. And they say all spinach that has been in all stores have to be taken off the... the what happens if you walk into Trader Joe's that morning and you just heard, and you're not exactly sure if the thing of spinach that you bought kind of looks fresh, looks good, but you don't remember the company that they said was giving the, 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 the spinach that had the salmonella. Would you eat it? Wouldn't eat it, because even if there's just a doubt of a doubt, you don't want to go through that miserable sickness. So why would we not care about our soul as much as we care about our body? This is really, really, really not healthy for us. And that's why it really, really requires... And this is something because people think like, kosher is like if I'm becoming religious, then I have to take upon myself kosher. But like, how can I grow in kosher? Well, I keep kosher. Like, it's, not, it's not an aspect. Comes Parsha Shemini, and we learn about... Ever thought about this? Every year Parsha Shemini, we're supposed to live with the Parsha. So what does living with the Parsha would mean in Parsha Shemini? In one of the ways, it means that we up our level of kashras. Because you can always make it better. See, say things that I used to eat, maybe I shouldn't eat because I'm not exactly so sure in their conscious just to rely on, every, on everything. Just an idea to just bear in mind. Now, let's take this a step further. The Torah actually now goes ahead and tells us what are the signs which determine which animal is kosher and which animal is not kosher. So the Torah gives us, I mean, by the birds they said the Torah doesn't give the sign, only the rabbis gave a sign. When it comes, however, to animals, the Torah is very, gives us a clear sign. What's kosher, what's not kosher. And it gives us two simanim. Two signs, which really can say three, two to three signs, that are indicative of what is a kosher animal. Sign number one is that the animal has to be mafreses parsa, which means it has to have split hooves. An animal that has a split hoof, those animals are kosher. Which tell us like this. First of all, an animal that doesn't have any hooves at all, that means that it has just paws, and its paws itself touch the ground. There's no hard shell like, a, like some, kind of a, a, um, some kind of a shoe at the bottom of the animal. Those animals like a cat, dogs, lions, tigers, bears, all these creatures walk on their paws, and they don't have this hard uh, shoe at the bottom. So those are immediately not kosher. It has to have a hoof, but the hooves have to be split. Then the Torah says, you have animals that are split, 
but they're not split through and through. So the requirement in order for it to be kosher, not with some animals, they're, they're split at the top, but they're not split all the way down to the bottom. So you look at the top of the animal's leg, it looks like it's a split hoof. But you look at the bottom, the part that's touching the ground, that part is flat. In order for it to be kosher, the split has to go through and through. That's, the sign of a, that's one sign of a kosher animal. But it's not enough to have one sign, it's to have a second sign. And what's the second sign is that it chews its cut, which means it regurgitates what it eats. It eats, it swallows, it brings it back up, and it, swall- and it chews it a second time, and then it takes it down. When you see these two things in an animal, then you know an animal is kosher, and that's what the cows do, and sheep do, and goats do, and the like. Okay, so let's understand, does this have any connection really to what we had spoken about before? Is there something about the nature of these, of these signs that are indicative? That you, so, it says in Hasidus, an interesting idea, that Semach Tzedek brings this, from Kabbalah, that the, I, when you see the, I, the concept of it having split hooves, that's an indication that it's a split entity. It's split between good and bad. The three impure klipas, the stuff that are non-kosher, we spoke earlier. Why are they non-kosher? Because they come from this very, very, very dark klipa that has no good potential. The only thing we can do with it is eliminate it from the world. We can't elevate it. It can't be sublimated. It's to be rejected. Things, however, the, the, the klipas noga, the, the mix, the other klipa that is elevatable, well, why? Because it's a mixture of light and shell. It's good and bad. And that is seen in the split hoof. The split hoof means it's split. It, ha- it shows you that it has a mixture of good and bad. And that, okay, so that's, that, that's, that's, the, that's the first idea. Now, the other thing about it is, oh, no. But we also know, and which tells us, we mentioned earlier, that if it's completely, if it's completely closed, if, if the animal has a hoof, but the hoof is completely closed. What does that mean? That means, as we had mentioned earlier, in addition to the fact we say, oh, it's, it's just, it doesn't show, it doesn't exhibit this duality, good and bad. It's just a simple, it's just plain simple bad. But there's another idea. When it's closed, it's called kluta. Klutais means completely closed. The other one, mafresis, means it's broken open. When it's kluta means it's closed. Closed, closed means there is a spark of holiness that's there, but the spark of holiness is so deeply entrenched that you can't pull it out. So the idea is that it's niklat. It has become completely absorbed in the klipa, in the unholy, and you can't yank it free. That's also, by the way, the, the sages in, in halacha, the term for anything that's not kosher, is called asur. And the, clo- the term for everything that's kosher is called mutter. Mutter means you're allowed to eat it. And asur means it's forbidden to eat. But the deeper meaning of it is, mutter means it's unbound, and asur means it's bound, it's tied. Asura means someone who's locked in jail. So asur means that there is holiness there. But you, can't, you, can't, you can't elevate it, you can't take it out. It's locked. That's the meaning of klita. 
Klipa means it's absorbed, it's closed, it's held in the klipa. You can't, there's no crack. You can't crack it open. You can't break it open. Here, the shell is cracked. You can break it open and bring out the light that's in it. Now, the other sign. The other sign that there is to the, um, to the kosher animal, which is also going to indicate that the animal is from coming from the Kalipas Noga, and therefore it's elevatable, is that it chews its cut. Now, interesting, the Medrash relates chewing its cut. The Medrash relates... See, the sages say interesting thing. If you look in the Medrash this week, that... Um, all the animals that are listed that are not kosher. See, the Torah really gives us the sign for kosher. Then the Torah lists four animals specifically that are not kosher. Even though it really didn't have to do that. Because it, once it gave you the rules of being able to determine what's kosher, what's not kosher, look at the split, split hooves and look at the, if it chews its cud, yeah, the Torah lists four animals, but specifically it says it's not kosher. So what are those four animals? It's a, it's a, it's a camel... And a rabbit, or whatever that, and a, and a, and a, and, a, and a pig. Four things. Why does the t- Torah list these four? The gomel, shafan, our neves, and the chazer. So this, the the medrash relates that these four animals are referring to the four nations that have enslaved the Jewish people, the four galiot, the four exiles, and it goes through each one. Who is who? Who is who in this list? Now, when it comes to the first one, Gamal, so the Torah, now, now see, the, the, what's unique about all these animals is all these animals have one sign. The rest of the animals don't have any sign. But these animals have at least one of the two. Three of them have the sign that they have split hooves. Not opposite. That they chew their cut, but they don't have split hooves. And the pig is the opposite. It has a split hoof, but it doesn't chew its cut. So the Medrash says... When it says male um, gera, that it's it chews its cut, it says that's referring to Bavel, the Babylonian, the first exile of the Jewish people. Kimale gerahi, because it chews its cut. What does that mean? Shemakaleses la kadosh baruch It praises God. I guess the act of chewing, bringing back up and rechewing it in its throat, is the idea. I don't know what exactly the connection is to chewing it, but it's something that's happening in the throat. And in the throat is where you can talk. So it refers to the nation that somehow praises God. And the Medrash goes on to say that the three exiles where the Jewish people were, Bavel, and then Madai, and even Yavan, all three of them recognize God to some degree. Edom, the last one, is in complete denial. That's why it says about Edom... That Edom is Gera lo yigar. He doesn't praise God. But what do you see from here? All I'm bringing from this idea is what you see from the Medrash is that chewing its cud, male Gera, is related to, as the Medrash calls it, that it praises God. means what kind of klipa is it? It's a klipa that has somewhat of godly recognition. The three impure klippas that we spoke about earlier, the real dark entities in this world, the really dark shells, those entities don't recognize God at all. They're in absolute denial, so they're absolute dark. But this one, since it's praising Hashem, 
So therefore, so you see in it the idea of klipas noga. It's a glowing shell. So these are two indications. However, this really, really gets much richer and much deeper. And that is that the signs that we're talking about over here that determine whether an animal is kosher, whether an animal is not kosher, also translates to the human being. Those not only is it defining, is the Torah defining the objective world around us, what's kosher, what's not kosher, but it's also our attitude. Because as we said earlier, eating is not just a means of survival. Eating is a manner in which we repair the world. We rectify the world through eating, and when we say eating, I don't mean only eating, we mean all human consumption of the materials of this world is all a form of sublimation. But we have to be very, very, very careful when we go about that work. Because we're working in a very dangerous zone. And it's a very fine line to be able to walk, to be able to know that I am sublimating the world and not, God forbid, the opposite, becoming... um, What would be the opposite of sublimate? Give me a good word. Sublimate. So, downlimate, I don't know. So there is a, whatever that means... Instead of becoming becoming impacted and being 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 negatively affected, so here's the idea: the pardon. See, we mentioned earlier that our souls are holy; our souls are intrinsically godly. Our soul, however, being that it's so spiritual, its task is to elevate the world. But the soul is so spiritual that doesn't it can't elevate the world because it can't connect. In order for it to connect, it needs the means of a body. And the body itself is not good enough. You also need to have a more physical, material, physical engine. The engine that motorizes the body is another soul. It's called the animal soul. And it's a very, very important entity, this animal soul. Because it's only through the animal soul that a person feels his physical, earthy needs. And when you feel your physical, earthy needs, then what? You can elevate the world because then you need, you engage, you involve, you utilize material, physical things in your, in your, in your life. So the human, almost put it this way, the human being rides on the animal and through the animal he elevates the rest of the world. Let's understand something. It's very, very important. If your approach to the material, physical world is not coming from your soul, it's not the beginning with your neshama, which means the inspiration to eat or to do anything in any other involvement in the material, physical world, it's coming just from our body, as a body desire, not with a deeper, with a deeper mindfulness. If there is no mindfulness, and it's just a physical, earthy craving that craves something in the material world, then we're approaching our food or anything that it is from the animal inside of us. And then, it's all, then we're acting sim, literally like a jungle. Because when you go to a jungle, you see animals killing animals. And you're appalled by it. The viciousness of how one creature eats, just because it's hungry, eats another creature. And you say, what's your right to do that? But if a human being doesn't have a higher and more spiritual approach to life, and is just functioning just 
out of a selfish desire to survive. So we really, really have to ask the question, by what right do I have to eat an animal? The sensitivity that there is in the world that people have today about that people are vegetarian is a very, very, very essentially holy sensitivity. It's a very positive thing. Because there really is a real question. What gives me a right to eat a... My, now what does that mean? Just because I'm hungry, you're going to die? Why should you die because I'm hungry? Like the Gemara says, who says my blood is redder than yours? We usually apply that to humans. I'm not allowed to save myself by killing someone else. Unless that person wants to kill me, then I'm allowed. But if, 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 if God forbid, I will, I will, I will um, push someone in to receive, God forbid, to catch a bullet instead of me, I did a very big sin. I'm not allowed to save myself by pushing someone else to their death. Because who says my blood is redder than yours? And why is that any different with any other living creature and any other being? So we really, really would not be, have no right. The only problem with the vegetarian um, approach is why a vegetable yet? And why do you think you can cut the cucumber or the, or the other thing off from its tree or an orange off from a tree from its sustenance and take away its life? What's the justification to that? There is no justification. The only justification to eat anything is only if we're approaching it from a spiritual standpoint. And that is... God has created the world. God has entrusted us in elevating all of creation. And by actually eating the food and with the right intention to serve my creator, then what I am actually doing is I'm bringing that object to a closer and deeper connection to its source. And it is happy with what I did. Of course, it can't communicate that to us. We won't be silly to see the animal being happy that it is being... Of course, we can't see that. But on a soul level, the animal is appreciative that you've elevated it. It really is. Because if it came to a person's table and you made a bracha on it and you ate it for the right purposes, then you lifted this animal up. So the first thing is that all food that we eat, all consumption has to come from the human side because only from the human side then we're taking it from animal to human or else it just goes from animal to animal. If I'm eating just because my stomach craves food, then how am I different than a cow eating? He's doing the exact same thing. He also craves food. So... There is no justification, only if the food that I'm eating has a higher purpose. Then I'm elevating it into the human. But which part of me actually reaches for the food? It's not my godly soul. The godly soul has actually eat 10 minutes, and an hour, two hours, and I'll forget to eat. Because it's interested only in serving Hashem. It's not really involved. So therefore we have an animal soul. And the animal soul is the part of us that actually engages the material aspect. But now the question is, just like the food that we eat has to be a kosher animal, the animal soul within the person, which is our instrument through which we use to elevate the animal world and the animal kingdom and everything in the world, also has to be a kosher animal. And here is when it comes Pasha Shmini, where each and every one of us has to make an inspection inside of us. Is the animal inside of me a kosher animal? Am, is my animal a predatory beast? Meaning, is my life, in my, my in, in, in interaction with other things in a cruel way? Or is my involvement with the world in a sensitive, 
careful way? Do I have a kosher animal? What is that? How does that, what does that boil down to? The question is, what's my motivation in all my material activity? So the Torah teaches us how to make sure that your animal inside of you, through which you sublimate the world, is a kosher animal. What are the signs of a kosher animal? So we said before, split hooves, completely split hooves, and choose its cut. What does it mean in the human psyche? In the human psyche, it means like this. Number one for us to have a positive impact on, all, on any material, physical thing in this world is there has to be hooves. If there is no hooves, you immediately know your animal is not kosher. That's a tough one. Hear really well. What does it mean there has to be hooves? Hooves means there has to be a separation. I need to have a barrier between me and the material world. If every single piece of food on the table has absolute control over me, that I cannot say no, because if it's a veer, it grabs me, and I'm pulled to it, and I can't resist it, then there's no hooves. There's no parsa. My friend says parsa. Parsa means a partition. There needs to be a partition. I can't be... I, see, if I am animalized, we said earlier, I can't elevate animal. I have to be above it. I have to be aloof. So I must have that barrier. Simply means that I'm disconnected. The first approach is, I'm disconnected. I'm not trapped by the material, physical things. I'm above it. I'm able to have control. That's number one. I'm above it. And so then, and that means even while I'm engaging in it, even while, but this is step number two, even while I'm engaging in it, first of all, I don't have to engage every time. I engage things mindfully. But even when I am engaged in whatever it is, whatever physical activity that I'm doing, I'm not completely enmeshed in it. My mind is not completely absorbed in the exhilarating experience of all the flashes of delight and pleasure and sensual whatever delights that I get from the material experience that I'm doing. I'm able to reserve a certain place in me that I'm above I'm conscious of, of God. I'm conscious of purpose. I'm conscious of meaning. I don't get lost completely in that activity that I'm doing to the point that there's, everything died right now. I'm just wallowing in the pleasure of what I'm doing. So I have to be dis- that, that, that means there has to be a barrier. There's a barrier. I'm above it a little bit, number one. But that's not enough. The barrier has to be split. Because the barrier itself, if I only put up a barrier, means that, okay, I'm shielding myself from it, but I'm not permeating it with purpose. So now once I have a barrier, number one, I'm a step above it, now I need to take that barrier and split it. What does that mean? It would be possible like this. Someone can say, you know what, this stuff is really, really challenging. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to make sure every time I eat or do anything, I'm going to numb myself from the experience. I'm going to make sure to put my mind into completely something other than what I'm doing and do it completely with total detachment. Total detachment. That's good. That's better than absorption, but you're not really elevating it. You're not really elevating the food. You're not really changing it because you're not permeating that experience with godly purpose. 
You, you, you have to be mindful. What's the mindfulness? You have to put into the experience. So on the simplest of levels, you make a bracha, number one. Which means you're, in, you're saying something godly while you're eating, while you're whatever it is that you're doing. Number two, not only you're saying the bracha, but while you're doing it, you're thinking, I'm going to use this energy to serve God. So when you're doing that, what are you doing? You're cracking, you're breaking, you're splitting. See what I'm saying? You're splitting the parsa, you're splitting the partition, and you're bringing divine intention into that activity which, was, which, you're, which you're now sublimating, which is very, very important. To bring godly activity. And the Torah says, here's, here's, here's another thing. The Torah says the hooves must be split through and through. Here's a tough one. It's not enough just to have that mindfulness right at the beginning of the experience. But then once you get like further into it, you suddenly lose yourself completely in the earthiness of the experience. The split hoof, which means the breaking through with divine intention, has to go through, through, through to the earth. That means it has to go to the very, very, very bottom of that activity that you did. It's not enough halfway. Halfway doesn't cut it. It has to permeate through the entire experience that I'm doing. I have a godly, I have a a consciousness of Asha. So then I have split hooves. A splitting. So again, it begins with detachment. Then punctuation. To puncture it. I have to puncture it. I do have to know that I'm... Or, you know, what a person could be involved in a material, physical thing and think about the godly, the godly in, uh, uh, input into this. Even if a person stops for a moment and thinks about the food that you're eating, how... Look how much, look how, look how Hashem is so creative. Look unbelievable how He came up with these so many different tastes, and such texture, and such beautiful color. See, that's what you're doing. In all your deeds, know Him. That very thought changes everything. And this is not just a nice Hasidic endeavor. This is the main purpose why we're alive in this world. To do exactly this. To be involved in material, physical activities. And in every material, physical activity, to feel, to sense, to recognize what's godly in that activity that I'm doing. That's the cutting it open. But the cutting it open, again, as mentioned earlier, not just at the beginning, not just the initial thought. The first moment of I'm doing this with it, it has to bear through and through and completely. Now... There's another idea. And that is that we have to chew the cud. What does the chewing of the cud mean? The chewing of the cud is the next sign if my animal inside of me is a kosher. Which means my involvement with the material physical world is on a kosher level. The chewing of the cud means that I have to think and rethink before it is, before I involve myself in any new material endeavor. I really need to really, really, really rethink a few times if I really need it. Because again, as we mentioned earlier, all engagement and all involvement in the physical earthy world is dangerous for the soul. Because the, merely, the mere involvement in material things casts a blockage. 
Every physical activity is a blockage. Remember that. You know, the Tanya says an amazing thing. He says that, you know, he doesn't say it in these words, but I'm just going to translate it into these words. I remember that when I was 13, young, I had such an innate, strong, powerful, natural sense of spirituality. I didn't learn, you know, even one tiny iota of the, all the information that I've studied in Hasidus and all these other years. But now it's information coming from books. Then it was information, just natural, not information, it was just a sense. Such a powerful sense of Hashem. And, and then when you just live life, the Alter Rebbe says in Tanya, and you live life, every time you take a bite of food, every time you're doing something physical, you're getting more klipa dig and more klipa dig, unless you work very hard to fight that. So you see, as you're getting older, there's certain sensitivities that begin to wear off, become more and more and more and more. So you can increase your knowledge, but the natural sensitivity decreases. Why? Because every activity in the material, physical world is a barrier. Unless you refine it. Unless you refine it. That's why it's interesting. The Mar of Hashemish, Reb Kalim, said, this, old, this explanation that I've given till now was in the Lubavitcher Rebbe, explaining the Mafresa's parsa, as we said, there has to be a hoof, you have to have a detachment, but you have to crack it open. But similar to that, I saw in the Sefer Mora Vishamash, which was from a Kleminist Kalman, a great Hasidic master. And he adds to such a beautiful idea. He says this idea, he says, all food that you eat is instantly a barrier. Mafresa's parsa means, Mafresa's means to break the parsa. That means... The only way one's eating is a positive form of eating or any other involvement is a positive thing is if the activity that you're doing is going to be in a manner in which you're going to break the partition. Now that should not add a block, but you're going to break it open. When you break it open, not only is it not going to block your soul, it's actually going to enhance your soul. It's going to enhance your soul because embedded in all material things are the highest, most potent spiritual potential. So we learn this in Hasidus all, all the time. And we're talking the whole time about the danger of the material world. But we have to remember that really the ultimate treasures and enrichment of spirituality is also in the physical. They're both there together. If we are able to crack open the physical and use it for the right thing, the spark of holiness that's there it enriches a person's spiritual capacity way above the neshama's abilities on its own. So therefore he says like this, Parsa is a partition. Mafres as parsa means to break the partition. But he says it has to be vishesa shesa process, which means completely split. Make sure that there's not even one bit of a partition blocking. Just break it through completely. And then what does he say happens next? Male geira. Male geira means choose its cut in Hebrew. But he brings an just a beautiful idea. It's just male geira. It will bring up geira, which means it will make you feel like a ger. A ger meaning like a someone who's, who's living over here temporarily, which is what we really are. See, the problem with klipa is it makes a person become bloated with his self-importance. That's what klipa does. Klipa blocks God. If I don't feel God, I feel me. So as a result of mafris parso, and you break it open, what's going to happen? Male, this is a type of food that's got spiritual qualities in it. Male, it's going to lift up, it's going to help raise to your awareness, Gera, that you're a Ger, 
That means we're a guest in God's world. And that's, that's the ultimate awareness that a person needs to have. I'm a guest in God's world. That consciousness can only come if we eat the way we're supposed to. If not, it goes the opposite. We become coarser and coarser. So now let's go back to the other meaning of Malay Geira, as the Lubavitcher Rebbe explains it. Malay Geira means being that the material world has such danger to it of desensitizing and clogging our spiritual sensors. So in, since it is so dangerous, so now it's important that before you take upon yourself any kind of endeavor, of any physical, material thing that you're going to add to your life, you have to chew it twice. That means really, really give it good thought. Do I really, is this really necessary in my service of God? And it maybe is, you know. If you really, really, really can't go through your day without chocolate cake, because it just really gives you a happiness and a thrill and puts you in a good mood, if you need it, have it. If you need a really good coffee in the morning, have it. If you need a chocolate with the coffee, because it, but you have to really ask yourself, do I really need what sugar do or I need that chocolate? If you need it, because it just makes you, okay, good. But you got to think about it twice. So if you're going to get yourself a nice car, you know, you know, your old lease is over or whatever, and you're buying a nice car. So you can get completely pulled into the materialism of it and just do it just because it'll add just to one's ego. Or maybe there's a necessity. Maybe I, it, 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 it's just whatever. I need it for whatever reason. That makes it gives makes me feel like a mensch, and I can use it for that reason. I will use it for a good purpose. Do I really need it, or am I fooling myself? Do I really need the Mercedes, or maybe I don't need? It? So you got to rethink it two times, even more when it comes to spiritual matters. You're not supposed to. Th- you don't have to think about things that many because it's spirituality. But when it comes to material things, you got to really chew it over and over again. Really, is this beneficial? If it is beneficial, it's a new, nice, new piece of furniture, and it will enhance your life. Not only that, you'll do mitzvahs with it. You'll teach people Torah on that beautiful new couch, and inspire people and talk to them, and that's what you feel will, will and it's good. But you really have to know if it's really, really true, or just convincing yourself. And that's the idea of chewing the cut. An extra, an extra to, to re, regurgitate, regurgitate, to think about this again and again, do I really need it? That's the concept of male geira. With this kind of approach, so we make sure that our work in the physical material world enhances ourselves and brings the world to, to, to a... Another one more interesting idea about male geira, mafresis parsa. Another very interesting idea about it is that in both of these simanim, in both of these signs, we find the idea of double. In, in split hooves, we find double. There are two hooves. In chewing the cud, we also find double. It chews and it rechews. What's the idea of double? See, one of the differences between the two simanim for, for kosher is the chewing the, the split hooves represents the, the first level of refinement. I'm taking something from the material world, 
I need to know. First of all, I only have to take that which I need, that which I don't need, I and that which is not really a necessity in my service of God, I have to reject. So that's what you're doing with your split hooves. That's the part that's touching the ground. That's the actual encounter with material things. It's the pushing away the negative, extracting the good. But then there's number two. What's chewing the cud? Chewing the cud is actually taking that which you've decided to use in your life and assimilate that into holiness. Just like, what's the idea of eating? Chewing the cud means you're actually eating it. When you're eating it, it's becoming part of you. So this is this two phases in refinement of the world. One is the selection process. What I need, what I don't need. I'm selecting what is kosher, what is not kosher. And then phase number two, that which I am using, I'm going to use it for good. I'm actually going to use it in Kedusha. So that's, that's a deeper stage. It's bringing it into holiness. And in both these things, there's the idea of double. What's the idea of double in both these things? So here's the thing. As much as I today was pretty strong on being careful on what we elevate, and only to be very careful on what we could elevate, on the other hand, it should not act as, as a deterrent for a person to say that, you know what, the most minimum, 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 minimum in my life is going to do, I'm not going to do anything else. The problem with that approach is that we're not going to fix the entire world for Mashiach. That's why, here's the thing, the project of fixing the world is the most important project in life. Since it's the most important project in life, we have to be very ambitious in it. And the ambitiousness in it is that when you elevate something, you have to bear, if the right away know that you're going to elevate something else. In other words, it's not satisfaction of like, I've done it already. A person has to know, yes, God wants me to fix this world. Doesn't mean that we have to eat 10 donuts. That's not what I'm referring to. But I mean to say is that anything that we use and we use it the right way, it's not like, okay, now, okay, I can now just detach from the physical world. I realize that, no, my job is to fix the physical world. The doubleness in the Mali Geira means, I'm sorry, in the Mafris Parsa, in the split hooves, means I fixed something onto the next project, onto the next project. There is more to do, there is the double in it. The split, the rechewing of the cud is again understanding that I need more, but not more in quantity, more in quality. More in quality means if I elevated this particular object to a certain level of elevation, can I use it for something even higher? Can I use this for something even higher? Can I use it for even higher? That means in, in bringing things closer to God, God is infinite. So that elevation goes, that means you, you ate it already. You've already absorbed it into your life. You're going to eat it again, which means it's going to be elevated even to a greater level of refinement. And then it's going to be elevated. When we say double, double really means infinite. The concept of double means do it again. I've done it already, do it again. But now I really did it, do it again. So the do it again is both in quantity. How many people am I going to affect in my life? I affected one person, now I want to do someone else. I affected this one, someone else. I've inspired here, now another one. There is there's no satisfaction. And there's no limit to how much and how much we could and should elevate. Number two, also there's no limit in how high we can elevate that which we have elevated already. And that's the doubleness, both in the Mafras Parsa and in the Malegira. May we merit to the time when um, 
It says even the chazer is going to become kosher. Which is a whole very interesting, phenomenal discussion. How that's going to happen that the pig is going to become kosher. But really, what it really refers to is that the last and final exile, the exile of the Edom, which according to many Mepharshim refers to Edom and Yishmael, which is basically the entire world today, um, that the, 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 what the Jewish people are suffering from, um, is going to become kosher, which means evil itself is going to be transformed to goodness. May we merit that we should see that now.